Leadership often comes with power, but it doesn't always feel like it. And yet, it turns out we have more influence than we think. In this episode, How to Use Power Responsibly. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 551. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So many of us in our positions of leadership do have power and influence. Sometimes we have that in informal ways, and sometimes we have that in very formal, structured ways. And we think often about how do we affect others? How do other people show up and respond to that power and influence? But we don't often think about that from the other lens of how we can use power responsibly. I'm so glad today to welcome an expert who's going to help us to look at the underpinnings of power and influence and how we can utilize power to do wonderful good in the world. I'm so pleased to introduce Vanessa Bonds. She is a social psychologist, an award-winning researcher and teacher, and a professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. Her writing and research has been published in top academic journals in psychology, management, and law, and she's also been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, and NPR's Hidden Brain. Her book is titled, You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and Why It Matters. Vanessa, what a pleasure to meet you. Welcome to the show. You as well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I heard your Hidden Brain interview a while back, and when I heard it, I thought, oh my goodness, I have to get this book and really discover what you know about power and influence. And I was captivated in the book by a story you tell about a position you had very early in your career of working in a sleep lab with children. I was wondering if you could share that story of what that was like and coming into that experience. Sure. This is one of those sort of odd job stories that people have. I, as you said, worked in a sleep lab. This is when I was an undergraduate at Brown University. And what the principal investigator in charge of that lab was interested in was basically whether there is a shift when kids go through puberty so that they go to bed later and wake up later in the morning because of this actual biological shift in their circadian rhythms. So she wanted to show that this was an actual biological thing and not just, you know, your teenager being lazy. And to do that, she had to get people to what's called free run. So you had to actually see their sort of underlying biology, their underlying circadian rhythms. Hmm. And to do that, you have to take away all the external cues that tell the body what time of day it was. So we basically had this lab that was called sleep camp. And we had a bunch of prepubescent and postpubescent kids come to the sleep camp and spend a couple of weeks there. And while they were there, there was no light. The light was incredibly, incredibly dim. So there was no sunlight to tell them what time of day it was. We couldn't have clocks or watches. 
we fed them sort of the same food every couple hours. So they didn't know if it was like breakfast or lunch. So we kind of kept any kind of cue that could tell them what time of day it was away so that we could see, you know, what happens to their body when it just sort of naturally runs on its own. Huh. Fascinating. So super crazy environment, right? And you can imagine (laughs) you've got like prepubescent kids, right? They're between like 10 and 14 in this dark, weird lab. And I will say, I don't want to make it sound bad. We did fun, you know, campy things. We, We drew, we had books, we had movies, we had things like that. But, you know, there was all this other stuff as well. And when I went into it, I had this idea. I kind of braced myself for this imagined chaos that was going to happen, that these kids were going to rebel, that, you know, all these things we were going to have to ask them to do. Like they had to wear, you know, electrodes on their heads. They had to fill out these forms every couple hours, spit in tubes, do all these kinds of uncomfortable things throughout the day. Hmm. And I was kind of sure that it was going to be really hard to get them to do these things. And so I was bracing myself to be like this tough, you know, camp counselor, scientist type who was going to really, you know, make sure these kids stayed in line. And what happened is before these kids came in, we went through a training and we went through this training with the principal investigator and this child psychologist who was there to make sure that, you know, the kids' well-being was also being taken care of as part of this camp. Hmm. And what they told us as part of this training just completely changed my whole sort of way of thinking about the situation. They didn't say, okay, you know, these kids are going to rebel. You've got to, you know, really kind of keep it together, right? They said, these kids are going to be nervous. They're going to not know what's expected of them. And they're going to be looking to you, right? They're going to expect that you have their best interests at heart. They're going to go along with whatever you ask them to do. And so it's not about maintaining this order and this control and this influence. They were telling us, basically, you have a lot of influence over these kids. And if you're making them uncomfortable or you're asking them to do something they don't want to do, they may not tell you. And so you need Uh... to be super aware and super attuned to what they're feeling in the moment that it's really not about necessarily gaining influence over them but taking responsibility for the influence that you're going into this situation with already. You write in the book, power can sometimes lead people to underestimate the impact of their words and actions on others even more. In other words, the very people with the most influence over others may be especially oblivious to that influence. When I think about those words, it just captures so much of the research you cite in the book that we just don't see it, especially when we have power, do we? That's right. So you would think when you're in this position of power, you know, like I was over these kids, or you can imagine, you know, just a boss over their employees, you would think that you would be hyper aware that, you know, people are going to find it hard to say no to you. And, you know, they may not be willing to voice disagreement with you. But in fact, it turns out that the very time when we have the most influence and the most power there are also these psychological effects of having that power that make us even more blind to the impact that we have on others. So for example, research shows that when you're in a position of power, you're less likely to take the perspective of the people around you. And you know that sounds like a bad thing, but it's really kind of just the way things are because when you're in a position of power, Presumably, you control the resources and the outcomes. And so it's not as big of a deal if you don't know exactly what's going on in other people's heads because you don't need them to sort of get the resources. 
But other people are super attuned to what's going on in your head. They really want to figure out what motivates you, what drives you, what you're feeling, because you are in control of the resources. And so because of that, you're not sort of spontaneously wondering, you know, if I said something, oh, I wonder, you know, if they took that the wrong way. I wonder if they feel offended by that. How do they feel about me now? We're just not thinking about that as much because it doesn't matter as much. And then there's another aspect of having power, which is that when you have power, you don't have to worry so much about what other people are doing or what the situation kind of calls for. If someone asks you to do something and you're in a position of power, you can say, nope, I don't want to do that. You know, I just don't feel like it. And you can feel very free to sort of shrug off some things. Because of that, we may forget that other people don't feel that same freedom. So we kind of overextend that psychological experience of having power of feeling like, you know, I don't have to do things if I don't want to do them, that, you know, no one has to do things if they don't want to do them. And so, for example, if I ask a subordinate to do something that they may feel uncomfortable with or something that really interferes with their, you know, work-life balance, for example, if I ask them to work over the weekend, they may really feel uncomfortable saying no to us, even if we feel like, you know what, if they don't want to do it, that's fine. They'll just let me know. Mm-hmm. But we're not aware of that. Yeah, my favorite line in the book, and I highlighted it a whole bunch when I read it, is this line. You write, a powerful person's whisper can sound more like a shout to the person they have power over. And I was reflecting on that in the context of one of the other stories that you write about, uh, an unfortunate story, but I think one that we could learn a lot from, is a situation that involved Division One basketball, and it was termed strip basketball. I'm wondering if you could paint the picture for what happened in that scenario, because I think it's a really interesting example of exactly that. Yeah. As you said, this was a really unfortunate story, but it really does highlight so many of the things we're talking about. So this was the case of a Rutgers basketball coach who was running a basketball practice session. And he decided, you know, he says for levity, to sort of get his players motivated to work on their free throws, that he was going to hold this strip basketball session. So sort of like strip poker, every time you missed a shot, you had to take off an article of clothing. So he tells the students, the players, that they're going to be participating in this drill, right? And there were a couple players, one of them in particular, who had trouble with free throws And especially when he was feeling sort of on the spot and nervous. And so he wound up being totally naked, running wind sprints back and forth down the court in front of all of his teammates, feeling basically humiliated. After the fact, of course, this really stuck with him and he was pretty upset about it. And he wound up, you know, suing the coach for harassment. And we kind of get an insight into both the players and the coaches' psychology as we look at how they talked about this lawsuit. It was pretty heavily covered. And so there's a lot of quotes out there about, you know, well, this is what was going on. And if you look at sort of the coach's perspective, he says things like, I didn't force anybody to do this, right? Mm. If, if they didn't want to do this, they didn't have to. I was just trying to add some, you know, levity and fun and, and change things up in a practice session. And if you look at what the actual player is saying, he's saying, you know, this is an actual coaching session, an actual official Rutgers practice where my coach is asking me to do this thing. It's not voluntary, right? It doesn't feel voluntary to me as much as the coach says this was a voluntary thing to participate in. 
But to the player, it really didn't feel voluntary. And yet, again, if we're sort of giving the coach the benefit of the doubt in this case, but I think a lot of us maybe could find ourselves in a similar position. We might not imagine asking someone to do something so egregious, but we might not realize that when we ask someone to do something, we may think it's going to be voluntary if they go along with it, but they don't actually feel like they are doing something voluntarily because we're their boss or we're their coach. It's really a fascinating example of that whisper being perceived like a shout because of the power dynamics. And it's, it's interesting. It's one of many situations you cite of examples where the person with power, I mean, who knows what was in their heart, right? But the person with power seems to be taken aback, like when something like this all of a sudden explodes or there's a lawsuit, seems to be taken aback by how others perceived it. And oftentimes we look at these situations, don't we, from the person who's been victimized or the person who you know, was the less powerful person, but we don't think about it from the perspective of what is it the person that had the power? How were they approaching the situation? And there's just a brilliant paragraph in chapter six. You write, people in positions of power seem to feel freer to do what they want to do, but that's not all. As it turns out, an important consequence of feeling like you are free to do what you want is that you assume that other people are also free to do what they want. This leads people in positions of power to view others' actions as more freely determined and opens the door for blaming others for things that they may in fact be beyond their control. That's just such an insightful concept and thinking about that basketball situation, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in that same section, I talk a little bit about some empirical research that also supports that idea that when we're in a position of power, we wind up blaming people for things that are kind of beyond their control, right? So for example, if an employee gets stuck in traffic, right, and is delayed and they really have no way to get to the office, people with higher power who are kind of instructed in an experiment to recall a time that they had power are more likely than people who recall a time they were in a low power position to say that person is responsible for being late, to sort of not take into account all those situational constraints. So two people reacting to the same scenario, right? But when we're in power, we see what that person did getting stuck in traffic as their own fault more than when we're not in a position of power. Hmm. It's amazing. And and the, the, the consistency of it is so interesting, too, in the research of how consistent it is in so many different situations. And yet, also interesting and really hopeful for me as I read through your research is that this isn't inevitable. Some people actually become more aware of their influence over others. And there's a distinction between the people who tend to go down this route, many people who end up ignoring the perspective of others and feel freer to do whatever they want, and the people who actually look at power in a different way. What's different about those two paths? That's right. So when you think about power, there's two things that come with power. One is opportunity, right? You can do more things. You have more resources available. You can kind of set the tone for something you can make a plan, right? There's all this opportunity and, you know, even to like enrich yourself and enrich other people. But it also comes with something else and that is responsibility. All of a sudden, when you're in a position of power, there's not just all these opportunities to do these great things, but now you're also responsible for all these other people's outcomes. 
And there's some people who seem to naturally sort of gravitate towards thinking of that latter part of having power. They think more about the responsibility angle and they're more sort of attuned to the impact of their actions on other people. And because of that, when they're in situations, you know, where they are speaking in a meeting or making decisions, they're also thinking about how their words are impacting others more so than people who are thinking of power as opportunity and are sort of doing these things that we mentioned before, where you're just not even considering what's going on in somebody else's mind. So it's not inevitable, as you said, if you actually can reframe power as something that comes with responsibility. And the thing is, research shows that we don't like to do that, right? Because that makes power Uh. a lot less desirable. So if you tell people, you know, remember that if you have, you know, control in this situation or you have power over these people, it's going to come with responsibility. You're going to have to figure out, you know, who gets the bonuses, how to allocate the resources. All of a sudden people are like, you know, I don't know if I want power after all. Uh, yeah. But if, if you can sort of overcome that impulse, then though that's where you get the best leaders, the people who are really aware of their impact on other people because they feel responsible for other people's outcomes. It's fascinating. And you cite the research saying that those who think about power as responsibility and really lean into that, they assign fairer workloads, they show greater sensitivity interpersonally, they tend to avoid crossing over inappropriate lines, like some of the examples we mentioned earlier. And so it's worth doing, right? It's worth leaning into that. You mentioned that some people just tend to do that more naturally. Is it a matter of that just comes to some people more naturally, and that's how we are wired genetically? And or are there things that we can do that help us to see power more through the lens of responsibility? And then as a result, be more likely to handle power responsibly. Right. And I think it is important to make that distinction because if we say, you know, some people just do that naturally, you're kind of like, if I'm not that person, you know, what am I going to do then? Yeah. So some people do tend to be sort of more pro-socially inclined. They already are sort of thinking about other people more often for whatever reason. And so those people don't usually need sort of big reminders once they get into positions of power. It just sort of comes along with that position, the responsibility, because you're already thinking about other people. But for those of us who that's not true, you know, for whom that's not true, just reminding ourselves, keeping at the top of our minds, this responsibility piece of power, which I think, especially in our culture, we don't talk about as much, you know, we really see power more in this sort of opportunity framing. We all want more and more and more power, right? But to actually be aware of each, at each step, that power also comes with more and more and more responsibility. And again, keeping that top of mind can help us to avoid making mistakes where we cross lines. It can also make us better leaders. For example, you know, people who think in terms of the responsibility of power are aware that if I speak first in a meeting and I give my opinion, no one else is going to want to cross me, right? So no mm. one's going to give an honest opinion in that meeting. And so, you know, people who are thinking of power like that are the people who will speak last, who will listen more, who will allow more voices to kind of rise to the table in a conversation. And so in the end, that makes you a better leader because you have access to more honest opinions. Yeah. One of the areas that I really thought was interesting is you looking at some of the research on those who want to do better and tune themselves a little bit more to thinking about power as responsibility and also 
noticing the power and influence we have over others, that there's a few ways that we can do that better. One of them you mentioned is to see the impact of our actions on others. When you say see the impact, what does that look like and how do we do it? Right. So this really comes from a fundamental biological fact that when we look out at the world, we're looking through our own two eyes, right? And so when we do that, we're seeing the things other people are saying and doing that impact us. We're seeing the things that other people are saying and doing that impact one another. But the one thing that's missing that we don't see when we're looking out from our own two eyes is ourselves in that scene. So we're not seeing the things that we're doing and saying that other people are potentially responding to. And so one of the suggestions that I make for people in positions of power, but really for all of us, is to do a simple exercise where we kind of take ourselves out of our own head and think of ourselves as a fly on the wall. If Mm. I were outside of this person's head and looking at sort of what's happening in this dynamic, what am I doing that might be contributing to this dynamic? What might I be saying that people are responding to? Another way to do it is to think, you know, if you were advising a friend as they tell you a story, right? Think about a situation that's going on with you, you know, a conflict or some other kind of, you know, problem that you're trying to solve. Imagine, you know, if you're someone, you're your best friend advising you on that and kind of looking at your behaviors as well, because it's so hard for us to see what we're doing that contributes to a dynamic when we're just kind of stuck in our own heads. So if we approach it from that third-party perspective a bit, it takes a little bit of the emotion, the present moment out of the situation. It helps us to be a little more likely that we might look at it more objectively and see the different sides and and the, the, the impact of our actions. That's right. Yeah. The other invitation you make is to feel the impact of our actions, different, a little different than C. And it was, in, it was interesting, you cite Dale Carnegie in the book uh, from his famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Vanessa, I didn't share this with you, but I used to be an instructor for Carnegie for many years. And so we would teach the skill of trying to see things from the other person's point of view. And when in situations of power and conflict, to really try to take the other person's perspective. And it turns out, as you mentioned, that's useful, but it doesn't necessarily go far enough. There's actually something we can do that's a lot better in many cases to actually feel the impact. Uh, I was wondering if you could walk us through that and like what, what we can do that's actually a step further. Sure. And I think your point is taken that, you know, you start with seeing. So we get out of our own head. We can see that, you know, oh, I said this thing that maybe someone was responding to. But that doesn't mean you understand the real impact of your words, right? To really understand how that person is responding. And so that's where you want to be able to feel your influence. And so, as you said, that, you know, a typical suggestion by Dale Carnegie and others has been to take other people's perspectives. And it's a really good idea, right? We want to be able to kind of get in other people's heads. But usually the way people kind of implement that in practice is that they search their own heads to figure out what's going on in somebody else's. Ah, So I spend time sort of thinking about what do I know about this person? How would I react to this kind of phrase? You know, what stereotypes do I have about this other person? And so I'm kind of creating my own idea about how they probably reacted to something I said. 
And I'm creating that from my own head. I'm never actually getting out of my own head to actually get perspective. And so Nick Epley and some of his colleagues have coined a term getting perspective instead of taking perspective. And the way you do that is incredibly simple. It's basically asking people what they're actually feeling, what they're responding to, you know, what they reacted to in something that you said. And the research shows that people are actually more forthcoming about things like that than we might imagine, that they're actually willing to open up to us about their feelings about a lot of these things. And that's how you get out of your own head. You're not now, you know, constructing this narrative based on your own prior experiences, for example. You're actually finding out how this person is responding and what they were feeling and why they might have been feeling that. It's so obvious in a way, and yet so rarely do we actually do that. Um, You know, the well-intended thought of I'm going to take the other person's perspective ultimately is limited by our own selfish perspective of whatever the situation is and our own narrative, right? And we might be right, but we also might really miss the mark depending on what the other person's experience is. You know, one of the things that I'm struck with is you've had so much experience, both yourself and the research teams you've overseen, of people actually interacting and making asks like that and interacting with other people and asking them to do something. For the person who isn't used to doing that, who tends to take the other person's perspective, but does it in their own minds. What do you find has been a helpful way just to start, to start to ask a question like, um, you know, how do you think about this situation? And I wonder if there's any like language or phrasing or just like a starting point that's been helpful for people that you've seen. You know, what's interesting is I think that we tend to overcomplicate it. I think we need to, you know, come up with this special phrase that's going to actually get someone to open up to us as if, you know, simply asking, you know, I just wondered if you could tell me how you reacted to this wasn't going to be enough. Hmm. So, for example, there's research, you know, showing that people, if you give them the chance to either ask about something that's really, you know, could no one could take offense to, you know, ask someone about how their day was, right? Or ask something that could be potentially really sensitive, such as, you know, what's your opinion on abortion? People, first of all, would much rather ask the thing that's not sensitive, right? Sure. Because we think it's going to be a way less awkward conversation. And they think other people are going to react a lot more positively to that sort of, you know, milk toast kind of question. But in fact, what the research shows is that asking these deeper, more sensitive, potentially personal questions, not inappropriate, of course, but you know, asking what people are really feeling comes across much better than we think. People are actually huh. happy to open up, more willing to open up, and the conversation goes much less awkwardly than we tend to think. So as much as you know, I think it's nice to be gentle, you know, sometimes to ask for advice. That's what a lot of people try, you know, could you give me advice on how I could do this better, right? Especially if you're in a position of power that kind of gives a little bit of power to the other person. So there are sort of little phrases that you could use, but I think at the end of the day, it's just the doing, just the asking and, you know, accepting that someone else is likely to open up and share with you more than you may realize. We've heard so much in recent years about the challenge of loneliness in our society at so many different levels and demographics. And of course, in the pandemic has complicated that in so many ways. And I think like how much we all yearn for real, genuine connection. And yet we tend to end up 
talking about the weather or just starting with something that's that's really simple. And it's it's interesting that the research is says, hey, you know, obviously there's contextual. Like you're not going to walk into a coffee shop and ask someone's opinion on abortion who you've never met, right? But within the context of a conversation that you're having, like I hear an invitation to like have the courage to get real and like ask about emotions and feelings and that people are actually a lot more likely and willing to want to share that than we assume often. That's right. Yeah. There's even, and again, this gets into sort of the realm of what's appropriate in a workplace context versus what's not, but there is this survey that the New York Times has published before. That's, you know, the questions you can ask anyone to get to fall in love with them basically. Mm. And a lot of them are these kinds of, you know, I'm interacting with a stranger and instead of just having these kind of generic conversations about the weather, you know, I ask them, when's the last time you cried? You know, just something a little bit more personal. And, you know, in, in the workplace, it could be, you know, something deeper, but still appropriate in that context. So maybe it's not when the last time you cried was, maybe it's not about your political opinions, but maybe it's, you know, when's the last time you really felt effective at your job? You know, when's the last time you really feel like you were listened to by your, your colleagues, you know, kind of deeper questions that really gets people to reflect and open up that kind of builds a sense of trust as opposed to having these very, you know, kind of mundane conversations. Yeah. And we tend to leave the engagement surveys for those questions and we're so good about asking them systemically, but we don't then have that one-on-one, that personal conversation to really understand the impact that, that we have on others. It's fascinating. Vanessa Bonds is the author of You Have More Influence Than You Think, How We Underestimate Our Power of Persuasion and Why It Matters. Vanessa, thank you so much for your time and for your work. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. If this conversation was helpful to you, several others I'd recommend. One of them is episode 254, Use Power for Good and Not Evil. In that conversation, I welcome Dacker Keltner to the show from Berkeley at the Greater Good Center and talking about his research on power and what he calls the power paradox. Uh, Power comes with certainly opportunities for influence, but it also comes with the tendency for us to have less empathy. As we talked about in this conversation, some of the complexities that go along with that in episode 254, we look at his research and what we can do not only to use power more responsibly, but how to avoid going down the wrong path. Episode 254 for that. Also recommended is episode 395, How to Create Meaningful Gatherings. My guest on that episode was Priya Parker. We talked about her fabulous book at looking at how we as people, as leaders, as hosts, create gatherings of people in many places in our lives, whether they be in meetings, uh, corporate events, organizations, uh, family get-togethers. There's so many places that many of us have actually a lot of power in how we put together what's going to happen with a group of people when they get together for a meeting or an hour or an afternoon, and yet how often we miss the opportunity to do some great things to create meaning in those experiences. Episode 395 is an invitation for you on some of the critical things you can do to begin that process of finding meaning 
in those gatherings. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 416, How to Negotiate When Others Have Power. That's something many of us have run into throughout our careers and our work, of course. Kwame Christian, my friend uh, who's a negotiation expert, joined me on that episode, and we talked about that reality that all of us find ourselves in when the other party, the other organization, the other colleague has a lot more power. How do we approach a situation like that and still negotiate in good faith and help both parties get a little bit more of what they want? Episode 416 for the details on that. You can find all of those episodes at coachingforleaders.com. And if you set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, you'll be able to search the entire library of episodes since 2011. This episode will be filed under Influence. There are many other conversations we've had over the years that'll be helpful to you. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership. Since the focus of this episode is power, I hope you'll allow me a moment of personal privilege for a few final thoughts on this topic. Longtime listeners know that I hail originally from the Chicago area, still the home of my parents and most of my extended family. What you don't know is what brought our family there. My grandmother was born in the 1920s and lived in a small town in southwestern Poland. When she was a teenager, the mayor of their town arrived at her house. The men with him were soldiers, and they were wearing swastikas. Hitler, having recently invaded Poland, needed youth to work on farms and in factories to keep the Nazi war machine going. They took my grandmother and many other young people. She would never see her father again. She spent two and a half years as a prisoner of war, and then another six years in German refugee camps. She met my grandfather, and they started a family. Through a family friend, they heard about a job in America, and amazingly were able to get a sponsor for a visa. When my mother was three years old, a Polish neighborhood in Chicago became their new home. My grandfather was a butcher. My grandmother, at different times, worked in factories and bagged groceries. They never had much money, they found a way to make a new life. They raised four kids, all of whom are still alive and thriving today, well into their 70s. All four have been happily married for some 40 years. Remarkably, between my grandmother's children and grandchildren, we have almost two dozen college degrees among us. My grandmother's name is Zanona, and I'm sharing her story with you because she died a few weeks ago. I've reflected on her life many times over the years, and on the occasion of her passing, have two thoughts to share with you. First, a thought on power. It's easy for all of us, living as adults during this age, to take today's world for granted. In most places where people hear this show, we have choice about where we live, the work we do, and who we love. Many of us travel freely from place to place if we wish to do so. There are, of course, always conflicts happening and awful stories in the news. I don't mean to minimize those realities. But when you contrast this moment in time with last century's wars, the world is overall more peaceful by almost any objective measure. It's easy to forget that when we look back on human history, the relative lack of war in most of our lives today is not the norm. It's the exception. Armies of hate have walked this earth many times, and if history is any sentinel, someday they may return. The best way we prevent that is by leading with kindness. Kindness has an interesting paradox. Being kind means that we have power 
and privilege to do otherwise, but that we choose kindness in spite of it. My grandmother made it through the war, not just because of a president or a general, but more so because a German woman, who had a lot more power than she did, was kind to her. Most people who listen to this show have power, and thus the opportunity for kindness. The conversations I have with you each week are a reminder for me to make kindness an affirmative choice each day. My second thought is one of gratitude. I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for Zenona. I'm grateful for her life and what she means for our family. And I bet you have a Zenona in your life, too. Perhaps like my grandmother, they escaped from a war to find a better life. Or maybe they supported your education or came alongside you at some point as a teacher or mentor. Perhaps your Zenona lended an ear or a shoulder or a home at a time you were struggling. When we were her guests on Christmas Eve, my grandmother always set an extra place at the table for the unexpected traveler who may be seeking food and shelter. When I was a child, crowding the table with an unused chair seemed silly. Now, with the benefit of age, I sometimes do the same. She, of course, was once that unexpected traveler. And I think so too are all of us travelers, just trying to find our way. None of us are self-made. By the grace of God we go, so often the guests at someone else's table. It's been many years since I didn't air an episode on a Monday, but this show will be dark next week in my grandmother's honor and in the honor of all the Zanonas who have lifted us up. So I have an invitation for you. If next week you happen to notice when a new episode doesn't appear, perhaps you might join me in taking a moment to remember your Zanona. If they happen to be close by, maybe you could thank them personally. If they're far away, perhaps you could reach out. And if, like my grandmother, they're in heaven, maybe just pause for a moment and say a quiet thank you. I'll be back with you in two weeks. See you then.